0: Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about curatorial practice and urbanism. Today on the show, I'm joined by the curator, editor, and designer Brendan Cormier. Brendan is currently a senior design curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London and previously worked as a managing editor for Volume Magazine in Amsterdam. Before all of this, though, Brendan studied urban planning and urban design. He worked in a variety of architecture offices in co-founded the Department of Unusual Certainties, which is a speculative design and research firm. We begin this conversation talking about the connections between that early work and his current work as a curator. I was really interested in how urbanism, how thinking about the city, influences his work working on exhibitions now at the V&A. We also talk about working with objects and how to tell a story in the museum, the differences between editorial and curatorial practices and the challenges with putting designed artifacts in the gallery. Scratching the Surface just relaunched our membership program over on Patreon. For the last three years, the show has been entirely supported through listener support, and we're now making it even easier for you to help sustain the show. We're now offering over on Patreon three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for super fans that give you access to all sorts of bonus content like monthly newsletters, early episodes, transcripts and exclusive interviews, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like Scratching the Surface, and you want to see it continue, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. It truly helps keep the show going. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to sign up. It truly, truly, truly means so much to me. Thank you, as always, for listening. And here is my conversation with Brendan Cormier. Or, or editor statement that you have uh, on your website you say you write with urbanism as my foundation I try to unravel the significance of design at all scales and what it means for daily life and I really like that statement for a couple of reasons I really like beginning with this statement and we'll talk about kind of all of your work but this this sentence kind of connects your early career with what you're doing now your background as studying in urban planning, working as an urban designer, and now being a curator and an editor and more on the kind of thinking curatorial side. And it strikes me that this early, you know, your early studies in urbanism have a deep influence on how you think about your work now. And I'm curious how you think about that, how this background studying urban planning, urban design influences your work as a design curator today.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. That that, um, statement, I think it was written probably around the time that I had just joined the Victoria and Albert Museum as a curator um, and was probably trying to post-rationalize my own career arc uh, to a degree and to try and think um, also kind of in a genuine way, what interests me um, at these different scales. So, you know, in brief, my career arc really moves from the very large to the very small, so starting in urban planning, then you know, moving into more of an urban design remit, um, then working at architecture offices briefly, and then um, through the space of writing and curating, um, being confronted with uh, objects, basically small objects, a collection, the DNA. And so uh, yeah, that statement really comes from just me trying to understand like what is the unique, what is the value added I can give to um, talking about things like spoons and uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know cufflinks and things like that and um, it was a slow realization I don't want to make it too neat and crisp but that uh, what essentially interested me at the Victorian Albert Museum and its collection was this idea that um, objects themselves uh, objects themselves can be viewed through the lens of urbanism which is to say that mm. um, we think often of cities as a collection of infrastructure and buildings and in fact that's really how the profession of urban design and architecture um approach cities Um, and in matter of fact actually cities are composed of uh lots more things and and one of those things are are actually objects and it's actually thinking in terms of objects at scale so thinking in terms of let's say a city like london a network of pubs every pub has, you know, a hundred uh, pint glasses. Um, so what is the urbanism of a pint glass and what does the object tell us about the way uh, people live in that city? So objects have a lot of agency in determining kind of the quality of life of the city. Um, and it's really interesting that, this that you know, that doesn't get touched upon um, at the scale of urban planning. So there's a, like a longer kind of, a uh, project that i've always been thinking about which what which has been about kind of thinking about being able to intervene in the city through the level of the object mm-hmm. so we can always like post-rationalize that we know that like a smartphone has you know fundamentally changed the nature of a city but can right. we can we project forwards and think from design and the designed object as being an actor in the city in the future
0: yeah it, it's so interesting to me and you started to kind of hit on where I wanted to take the conversation also is because I was interested in the evolution of your career and the i don't know exactly how to phrase it the increasingly smaller scale of your <laughs> of your kind of purview not not to say that you've you've abandoned urbanism in any way as you just said but that you started with urban planning into urban design into architecture into curating thinking about objects that um you know, each of these things sits inside the other, and I am in no way an architect or an urban planner. But my interest is in the opposite way. I, I, you know, coming from a graphic design background, I was thinking about objects, books, typefaces, you know, posters, and as I moved through my career, was starting to think about them in the larger context, in the space they're surrounded by, and realizing that my scales are getting bigger. You know, and I'm I'm curious, I don't know exactly how to phrase this question, but in this, you know, zooming in almost, do you think that changes how you look at these objects, that you are coming from them or looking at, you know, these, I, I don't want to make it so focused on objects necessarily, but mm-hmm. um, that you're coming into this thinking about the city, thinking about the widest possible scale, does that change you know, your process, how you think about these things, because you're zooming in instead of being someone starting at at the the smallest level and zooming out. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in general, it, it's an interesting conundrum, I think, in design in general right now. You know, th- this whole idea that I mentioned about kind of um, thinking at scale and being able to zoom in, yeah. and that, you know, in one sense, it's nothing new. You know, we've had architects talking about, you know, um, framing it as you know from the spoon to the city literally using the word spoon um and somehow i just feel like in current design dialogue that gets um that gets missed out a lot that's not to di- that's not to discredit but you know there's lots and lots of work um that's done uh, at that level but i'm thinking more specifically maybe in the way um From the museum's perspective we talk about design which still is you know incredibly conservative to a certain degree now there are a few maxims on exhibition making and and determining a public program that people tend to stick to because they know that draws a good audience so one of them is is a biographical show so focusing really on the author and the author's work Um, and then the other one is thinking in terms of chronology So anyways, the point is, I think the way museums talk about design is still really um, focused on the author and about um, uh, a body of artistic work um, that doesn't do justice to the fact that these objects that they're designing exist in space. They have a life of their own. There's a story about industry. There's a story about their use um, Mm -hmm. uh, that gets often overlooked. So so that's kind of what interests me more than these kinds of biographical shows you know like thinking about something like the history of Tonnet. Tonnet's a really good example um, of Mm -hmm. a chair because it's you know it's the most mass-produced chair in the world and so it's been really well um, documented Um, and so because of that documentation we can start to kind of understand the role a chair plays um, in the development of the last 150 years but we still don't do it a lot. You know, when you think about the time and place that tonic comes around, you know, it's it's inventing a mass, a, a mass producible way to make a chair right at the time that um, cities are expanding, growing really rapidly. And we see the emergence of new typologies. So things like uh, the cafe, but also um, the need for uh, mass assembly more and more. And so you need you know, similar to another kind of famous chair, the Navy chair, you know, you have kind of right. corporations who need to buy lots and lots of chairs. Um, and so these changes occurring in society and in the city, um, uh, you can't really describe the tonnet chair itself without, um, understanding, mm-hmm. uh, the effect on the city. And so those are the narratives that really
0: interest me. Where, I, I'd like to, um, I'd like to kind of, uh, you know put this in the context of your work sure, and, and yeah. kind of figure out how how you got interested in that narrative mm-hmm. actually and so you know as as we started the conversation you studied uh urban planning you studied urban design you worked a little bit um in architecture studios when c- can you talk a little bit about where this interest in kind of thinking about these scales and how these scales relate to each other mm-hmm. um and, and and this kind of evolution from planning to design to, you know, I guess, editing and, and curating and kind of more about thinking about them?
1: Yeah, I can give you a, a kind of bottled history of my uh, very um, winding mm-hmm. uh, career trajectory. And I think okay. in trying to, you know, and I think it would all stem back from a deep dissatisfaction with the way urban planning and urban design operate. So I trained mm-hmm. as an urban planner. Um, that was my bachelor's degree um, I quite quickly grew frustrated with the profession because it didn't it didn't it wasn't able to think in terms of design um, mm. you know the the separation in North America between planning and design um, uh, is quite drastic so that you have planning uh, schools kind of sit apart from any notion of design which then went to architecture schools but um, right. so planning was really policy based and it was very frustrating that um, we weren't given the tools to be able to kind of literally visualize what we think the this this, this city should look like. Uh, so I went from there to uh, a master's degree in Germany um, at the Bauhaus Universität to study urban design, let's say, or urbanism. It all kind of gets muddled up, um, <laughs> but specifically wanted to be closer to architects and to to kind of learn the tools of visualization so that at least, you know, for myself, I would have more power to kind of, Um, to draw out or visualize what I think the city should look like. And from there, um, uh, worked at a few architecture offices to get those kinds of skills as well. In Holland, where they're very, very good at urban design um, and (laughs) things. Yeah. Um, And then the 2008 crisis happened. I was jobless and ended up going back to uh, Canada, where I'm from, to Toronto, worked at an office there, actually with a friend of mine uh, from my undergrad, Um, and immediately kind of was thrown back into all the things I hated about urban planning, especially the the consultancy aspect. So, um, you know, there are, I mean, this might be too much detail about the urban planning history, but, you know, there has been this kind of um, new urbanist school of thought uh, that's, you know, emerged in the 1980s and that we've been kind of uh that we've had ever since um and so if you work at an urban planning consultancy essentially essentially your job is to kind of um draw pretty visualizations of a main street in the public square and people having a cappuccino um mm. and write a report and give it to a city and you say good luck with that mm. <laughs> uh, right. and, and there you know if you're lucky something maybe Decent, semi-decent comes out of it but it's all right. kind of abstract and so my friend and I, um, his name is Chris Pandolfi. we grew very frustrated at the idea that you know the kind of the richness of the city and the complexity of the city was being reduced to you know your ability to sit on a patio and have a cappuccino um, and people walk right. right it's right. A really kind of middle class um, uh, privileged kind of idea and so he had also studied um, in Milan and so we had some you know, some design tools on hand. And so we decided to break off and we started our own um, uh, office. It was called uh, Department of Mm Unusual Certainties. Um, And we didn't really know what we wanted to do with that office, but we definitely knew what we didn't want to do. You know, we didn't want to be another urban planning consultancy that did that kind of thing. So we started to engage a lot in um, research projects about the city um, uh, that interested us and to try and use our visualization and communication skills um, mm. to add another layer of understanding uh, to the city. And all these projects were really, I think, at that moment, this is in our late 20s, this is around 2009, 2010, where we're just trying to see what we, we're just playing with the medium and seeing what we could do. So, you know, um, we did a project where we visualized a bee habitat in the city of Toronto, for example. Mm. Um, we did another project where we looked at Parquet spaces they're always called something different everywhere else so parklets you know very small park oh yeah yeah yep um usually these are accidents of the urban planning system they're these bizarre leftover spaces that then get, right. like a, you know a sad piece of grass uh, laid down and planted on it <laughs> right right and so we did a whole project um a publication and an exhibition that was just saying you know if you add up all these park spaces you have a significant, a significant size park, but each of these park spaces on their own you know, don't do anything. So can you think rather, as, rather than thinking in terms of an individual design project for each parkette, can you think of them as a network? And, you know, mm. can that mm-hmm. provide another mm-hmm. layer to the city? That's interesting. So it was really just kind of projects like that. We wrote a lot for publications. Um, we did exhibitions. Mm. And after a certain point that became um not very sustainable financially for me
0: um
1: yeah and this kind of golden opportunity arose um where volume magazine in Amsterdam were looking for a managing editor and um I was interested in moving back to Europe at that time and having Mm. a little bit more of a stable income Mm -hmm. I should say it sounds really fancy that we had the studio but we were literally kind of um you know, running the studio from nine to five and then at 6pm, putting on uh, black pants and a white shirt and catering events around Toronto. I I think it's really important to kind of mention these things. um, uh, Yeah, speaking in public, because people often might get the wrong idea that one can make a sustainable living kind of doing
0: speculative research. I really appreciate you saying that because I was going to ask where these projects were coming from if they were yeah, so we we I think we did what everybody else did. We wrote um, grants. Um,
1: but okay. The grant system in Canada is probably similar to in the states, where you know there's not a ton of money for design, so you end up having to frame a lot of your projects as art, which is you know somewhat problematic. Um, we did some teaching, and um, and and then we. Did on the side so you know you you make it work somehow and now i should say that actually chris runs department of unusual certainties in toronto and it's evolved since then and it's its own proper
0: practice so so it's a good news story in the end before we move on to volume i have one yeah. other question about uh, department of unusual certainties because yeah. it sounds like i in prepping for this and in looking over your background, I had a sense that co-founding that, kind of thinking about it from a, a kind of research and design perspective, seemed like an interesting turning point in your career, mm-hmm. uh, frankly, in that it's st- it was the place where you started to incorporate writing and curating and speculation that then has become what you've made your career since. Was that the first time you were kind of thinking about Publishing publications, writing texts, uh, that your work could be curatorial in some form. Was that uh, was that something that you were interested in before? Did you kind of, you know, because of the studio, just kind of start doing it?
1: Well, I had always been interested before uh, in writing okay. in general um, okay. and had written a few pieces uh, for some independent magazines. Um, there's mm. one uh, called Spacing in Toronto that emerged in the early 2000s. So that was a great platform to get some writing done, especially about public spaces in the city. Mm. So I've been doing that. I had started, you know, in my early 20s, a very, very crappy uh, zine with a friend. Uh, <laughs> as, as we all as we all have. <laughs> I think it managed to we, we managed three issues, but it was fun and exhilarating to kind of, um, you know, put your voice to paper. So that had yeah. existed. Um and then when we had the studio, it, of course, became more important to publish because uh, we wanted to uh, announce to the world who we are and what kind of work we did. So, so we definitely accelerated and increased the amount of publishing. And that also coincided, it should be said. I'd be curious how it works today because um, around 2010, uh, you know, it was this incredible moment where we saw a flourishing of independent um, architecture and design magazines. Um, mm-hmm. And so a lot of the pieces that we published were for magazines that had put out open calls. So talking about accessibility, mm. how do you get into a scene? Uh, you respond to an open call. Um, and a lot of those magazines don't exist anymore. You know, they 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 started up with a great amount of energy from the people running them. But after a certain amount of time, uh, you're not making any money off of these things and um, other considerations come into your life. And so, yeah, it's, it's right. So we really benefited from that 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 moment, and sometimes I wonder, you know, where are people, um, you know, if I were to start a studio again, and if I were in my late twenties, you know, uh, yeah, what are the tools at hand? But
0: maybe you just have to ask somebody younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's different for sure. I mean, yeah. I think you're right. Um, those independent. I mean, I uh in that era 2010 2011 is when i was just finishing my undergrad and so i was kind of going into the profession seeing all of this stuff and being very excited about it um and a lot of it's gone i mean i guess there are other tools now there's there's online publications and you know more kind of uh network things but that you're right that was a very interesting moment for kind of independent design and architecture publishing Mm.
1: Yeah, and there's a huge difference. I mean, there's there's a potentially huge difference between what you can achieve on a page and, and what you can achieve um, online. Or mm-hmm. I mean, we can get into that a little bit. Maybe I'll tell you a little bit. You know, the jump
0: to volume is interesting in that regard. Um, so yeah, I wanted I wanted to ask about volume next and kind of what that transition was like and 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 even just <laughs> as simple as it sounds, what the role of a managing editor at a, a publication like volume. Entails.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah.
0: So yeah, I had never been an editor before, so it was
1: a big jump. I interviewed <laughs> them. They, they said uh, they hired me, and I, and I I flew over to to Holland um, again. You know, not making an incredible amount of money. Um, it was very low. Um, but um, I guess what had Originally, so I had originally seen Volume Magazine when I was first in Holland um, in the mid two thousands when I was working at architecture offices, and I just loved it. I just completely was um, yeah yeah kind of taken by how it as a magazine wasn't um, simply an accumulation of uh, articles by different authors arranged around a theme, but somehow felt much more editorially whole as a kind of conception mm, mm-hmm. and that you're actually working within the format of the magazine to create an experience as you flip through the pages. Um, right. And only later did I kind of discover, I was, I was a late discoverer of uh, Colors magazine. Um, oh, yeah. Which really mastered kind of that whole idea uh, that you're not just assembling different articles, but you're creating like almost, a you know, I hate kind of saying exhibit, moving from one format to another, you know an exhibition on pages but um there was a lot of clever work in the way you would experience uh, moving from one page to the other and the way the words were arranged on the page um that goes Mm. beyond uh, an academic journal and i suppose that's kind of what i'm missing again today um in the publishing landscape Mm. kind of creativity and the other thing that i really liked about volume you know lots of magazines would do themed issues you'd like they'd be like this is the skyscraper issue or this is the um Landscape issue, and you know, it's it's um, a problem I had even with curating. It's a problem I have with editorial is this no- notion of kind of curating by topic or curating by noun rather than curating by idea. And so, volume was really good at putting forth an idea in every in every issue or a thesis or or something that they wanted to probe. And it didn't matter kind of how outlandish it was you know it it was your beginning point and then you made the whole issue so so that's what drew me to that magazine and then i I, I went to Amsterdam to work there um, and then what does a managing editor do well works with the works with the head editor to kind of come up with the themes and ideas and then it's just um a lot of work uh, finding authors um, commissioning texts but then more importantly is really trying to think of that editorial layer in the magazine which will act as the glue to kind of stick everything together and to make it feel like something more than just a a compilation of essays
0: you've described your role at volume as also a curatorial I've, I've heard you refer to that as feeling like a curatorial role and even the way you're talking about it now it sounds yeah um you know, equally editorial and curatorial. I'm curious, and, and you, you you said something interesting where, where you said you hated, you hate describing it as an exhibition on the page. Can you talk a little bit about editor versus curator or editorial versus curator or publication versus uh, <laughs> exhibition and how you see those come together and how you see those diverge?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say I don't really mind the use of the term like curating as curating a page and curating you know, mm. a, a song selection. I think that's okay. What I, what I find problematic is when we ter- use the term exhibition, and this is actually more towards the online world and we say an online exhibition, um, which we've been talking a lot about lately because of the pandemic. And so it's just that the idea for me is that, you know, uh, as a communicator, as somebody Uh, who wants to put forth ideas you always have a range of formats and medium media at your disposal Um, and each of those have their own unique kind of characteristics and traits and capacities to to communicate in different ways so an exhibition is one a magazine is another a website is another thing altogether Um, and so increasingly you know, I, I think everybody works across all of these media. Um, you know, certainly yeah. when you're a curator, you're making catalogs and texts. Um, but I don't think enough thought really goes into kind of um, uh, the different capacities of each of these media and what they can do and, and how they can deliver things. And that, and that kind of nuance um, is really interesting. So editorial versus curator. Um, in that sense, I would just say, you know, editorial versus exhibition maker maybe is probably a better um, distinction um, because then we move, then then we get away from that kind of nasty catch-all quality of, of curator that it is today um, I think in one sense they are the same in that you're, it's the same idea that you're trying to put a story forward or, 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 or um, yeah, communicate an idea uh, and then of course fundamentally different because you're with an exhibition working with objects and with Uh, editorial, Mm. either working online or working with a page. And so thinking from a design perspective at that, it's, you know, it's really interesting. A a big problem I find in curating is actually the the other way around so that people have an idea. um, They think of their idea primarily in terms of words. They can write a brief. Mm -hmm. um, So they're communicating to you with words. But at the the end of the day, um, exhibition making is all about communicating with three-dimensional space and objects and visual. You know, you have a label that is one of the things at your disposal for an exhibition, but you always have to curate an exhibition, keeping in mind that there is going to be a substantial amount of people who will never read the label. <laughs> but, <laughs> right, right. So, and so time and time again, people go, Oh, I have this great idea for an exhibition and they don't have an, any idea of what the objects are in the exhibition. Yeah. Um, and, um, the, it's not that that can't not be done but it it makes your job a lot harder um if you're approaching an exhibition from the wrong way around in that sense
0: yeah i know exactly what you mean i actually just had a conversation on the podcast with robert wiesenberger who's a curator at the clark museum uh and used to be at the harvard art museum working with the bauhaus collection and and, and he's also a, a writer and curating is something that i'm very interested in um and would like to do more of. I have have very little experience in in the curatorial side. And the part where I get hung up there is exactly what you just said. I know how to have an idea or a question or something that I want to to probe and explore. I know how to do that through writing. I know how to structure an essay. I know how to to research. But then to think about moving that to a three-dimensional space, thinking about objects, thinking about how those objects can tell the story, I have I have no idea how, how to do that. And you, I imagine that that perhaps is is maybe the biggest difference between volume and then your your work at the V&A. What was that jump like? Um, or or you know, did you have an interest or an ambition in moving off the page and thinking about how to tell these stories or ask these questions through objects? Was that um, Can can you talk a little bit about that kind of intellectual jump? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, I should say
1: before that,
0: that, um, you know, with Department
1: of Unusual Certainties, we were making exhibitions, but they were more like installations and they were more like um, three-dimensional information visualizations, uh, so to speak. So, So that had already interested me, but you're absolutely right, is that the the um the actual act of working with an object I had never done before. And of course it was hugely intimidating. Um, yeah. You know, if you come from an architecture background, you tend to have a kind of smugness and think that you know about other um other <laughs> uh, Yeah, this yeah. everybody knows that, right? You know, every graphic every architect thinks they're a great graphic designer, for instance. Um and then when I first came to the VNA I was completely overwhelmed with my own stupidity. Uh uh uh, you know, based around, you know, general design history um, and, you know, having conversations with other curators where I was, you know, just wildly mispronouncing the names of, you know, very famous people. Uh, <laughs> I had just read their name for the first time day uh, in, a, in a textbook. Um, but I have to say, it's been a slow journey for me to 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 really understand this idea of how to present an object and not how to present a text. So I would actually say, you know, the first shows I did, um, the first one uh, was the reason I was hired at the VNA was to do a show in Shenzhen in China um, using only VNA objects. Um, so it was going to be a kind of gallery of 20th and 21st century design um, and 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 kind of making a selection from the 1.2 million objects we have in the collection and to bring it out over there. And so I was doing that kind of classic thing that I said you probably shouldn't do, which is kind of constructing a complicated narrative. Um, that I would expect people to read the labels to understand. Um, and then slowly starting to understand that actually some objects are better than others at communicating an idea. Um, and so it's not always like, you know putting the most historically correct object um, on a display isn't always the best way to communicate what you want to communicate. So like for instance, um, John Haberkin has these amazing uh, Heineken bottles that he designed um, as bricks. So uh, you've got a, a pint size bottle and then a half pint size bottle. So you've got these two sizes. There are these kind of strange rectangle bricks that slot into each other, and you can build a house out of it. Um, mm. And so it's a fantastic idea of thinking through an object and how an object can perform multiple purposes. It's afterlife, thinking about waste, thinking about construction, You know, thinking about how an object can have an expanded life beyond its initial use. And um, of course, you know, as an object, it was completely a failure. Um, they They designed it, and then the I think the story is that the legal um, department of Heineken said, "This is too much of a liability um, you know if a, if a glass brick house made of our bottles collapses um, we'll be sued, and so they never actually seriously pursued it. but the visuality like the, the way you can look at the object and kind of immediately understand what it's trying to do makes it a very powerful object for, for display versus so many other things, which are so difficult to display and don't really say much. Um, so for instance, like, um, very much interested in, I'm very much interested in the maker community and mm. you know, things like Arduino and kind of the ability of these microprocessors to kind of, um, uh, engage a whole community and and to think a different way about electronics and computation. At the end of the day, though, you're looking at a circuit board um, when you put it on the screen. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. These objects all have kind of pros and cons, and it's not, you know, you really need to start with that kind of image of the object and what it's saying and its ability to kind of communicate an idea rather than the most, um, yeah, I don't know how to say it, really. Just like the most straight kind
0: of written history of something. I'm thinking about how we started the conversation and 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 kind of this changing of scales, mm-hmm. even going from from urbanism down to the object and something that I think about all the time, especially in regards to to graphic design exhibitions, but I guess in a way this applies to all design exhibitions that uh or design of any kind when you put it in the museum, you remove it from that context or from the infrastructure that Uh created it or through which it originally lived Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm curious if you have thoughts on that and how you you know how do you how do you help tell that story that that this is a thing that lives within a city and has been influenced by you know that that city or context or place or whatever uh how you bring some of that context into the museum so it isn't just uh you know objects on on pedestals yeah 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 well
1: i mean it's a it it's a, an advantage and a disadvantage, so there is kind of this very funny great power to putting especially when it's a kind of a normal object that one would never consider. Um, In the space of the museum, when you put something on a pedestal and, you know, um, under perspex or acrylic um, and you light it really nicely um, and it's not something people would expect, there is a certain power to it where you go, okay, I'm looking at this object anew and fresh and, you know, and so that's interesting in it's own Mm -hmm. right. In terms of kind of the use, I mean, now you're touching on a huge issue, which is really problematic with museum collections in general, which is once you assign something to a collection, you're so limited with actually how you can display it. And there's this whole mm. uh, litany of kind of conservation standards. Um, you know, you talk about uh, graphic work, then, you know, everything has to be lit at a very low level, you know, daylight, you know, forget about it. Um, right. Obviously touching is, you know, a no-go uh, zone. And so um, you're actually very limited with museum collections. And so there needs to be a lot more creativity, I think, in, in and willingness to kind of be able to use things that aren't um, that aren't collected. In terms of telling the story of the lives of the objects, I use film a lot um, mm. in my exhibitions, um, and when I'm doing an exhibition, I always try and claw back as much as possible a budget um, so that we can work with the filmmaker. Uh, from the beginning, because otherwise, you know, you'll lose the budget to to marketing or something else. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, it's a fierce world, um, the exhibition making at large museums. Uh, there's a pot of money and everybody wants it. And you have to be really upfront um, with what the needs of the exhibition are early. So I did a show about um, cars. That's the last big uh, yeah. exhibition I yeah. did. Um, last year and that was actually given to me I, uh, it, it's kind of hilarious because i don't have a driver's license and um <laughs> as an urban planner kind of have been raised to think that you know the car is more or less the devil on on right on right day, especially coming from north america um but you know i thought you know conceptually if we're going to talk about design and we're going to talk about the agency of design and this whole idea i had brought up earlier about um designed objects as actors that affect you know what our cities look like you know there's no better object to talk about than the automobile Mm -hmm. um so so i said yes to that show but in conceiving that show um of course we knew that there would be cars, and they would be sitting there. <laughs> and mm-hmm. to a certain degree, you can, you know, kind of enjoy and take in um, the aesthetic qualities of those cars. But so much of the experience of the car, of course, is in the driving, as in, in the experience of it, um, it's like yeah. the smells and the sounds. So we 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 made sure that we had a huge budget for for uh, for that. And so we decided to use film in lots of kind of fun, different ways that I've never tried before. So. One of the things we did is we we created you know very large scale projections that where not much happens, um, but it takes you to a place that you've never seen before. So we um, shot inside of the BMW factory in Munich, um, mm-hmm. where it's all completely automated. Um, and this is in a section where we're looking at the um, the the role of uh, the car in how it changed manufacturing. And so, yeah, it's floor to ceiling projection. It's meant to be shot kind of one-to-one so that when you're standing in front of this wall projection, you feel like you're inside the factory. Um, And again, these are kind of non-narrative films, but they're all about creating atmosphere. And then we did another one on the other side of the room where we talk about landscape, where we have this 20 meter long projection of landscapes from lithium extraction to kind of suggest kind of what the new... Um, extraction economy is for cars because of batteries mm. to the more kind of iconic image of like a uh, an oil field outside of Bakersfield um, to a spaghetti junction. So film can be really powerful um, in terms of that. And then the other thing which I haven't really explored is really um, how to do exhibitions that aren't about looking at objects but are about creating experiences. And I think with objects mm. that's really uh, there's a lot of potential there and if our goal is you know, on one hand to kind of bring, this is, I I might be going maybe off piece too much, but one thing I just, no, go for it, go for it. Well, one thing I just really love, and I think, you know, of our goal to kind of demystify design and kind of explain design and show how design is done to a certain degree. There's nothing better Mm -hmm. than going on a factory tour or visiting somebody's studio or seeing the printing press, um, right. And and actually experiencing, you know, the mechanics of how the stuff is made, um, More and more so because, you know, our understanding of objects is we're so far removed from it now. Um, Mm -hmm. One can imagine a museum about design, which is not a museum at all, but is simply like a a roving um, uh, open house tour in your city of all the different kind of uh, places stuff is made.
0: I, I'm glad that you brought up the cars exhibition because I wanted to ask you I, I have just a couple questions to mm-hmm. to to wrap up, but I wanted to ask you about the the cars exhibition because it seems in a lot of ways that a lot of what we're talking about could be embodied in that exhibition or or is you know made manifest through that exhibition through thinking about how cars have influenced the city and vice versa, going back to the beginning of this conversation also thinking about kind of putting objects in a museum. I think cars are an interesting object to Mm -hmm. (laughs) take out of that context and put into a museum. Mm -hmm. But also going back to what you were saying about what you liked about working at volume is that it wasn't just about a theme or, you know, a topic for each issue, but was actually like a question, a point of view. It had something that it wanted to, to ask about and, and figure out. And when I think about, design exhibitions those are always my favorite design exhibitions too where it's not just you know here's the history of chairs or here's the history of you know russian posters or whatever but there's actually some sort of point of view angle story and i'm curious if you had that for cars especially as somebody with an uh, urban planning background you have an opinion about cars you do not drive Mm -hmm. was there a narrative there was there some larger idea beyond just you know, this is an exhibition about about cars, and then how did you kind of go about doing that um, through you know putting the objects? I guess you know you're starting to answer that by by the films and things like that. But can you talk just a little bit more about that process? Yeah, yeah,
1: sure. So with cars, I mean, it was an incredibly tricky topic because it's so loaded, right? Everybody comes to it with a, an opinion, um, and it seems to be you know slightly divided. Either you're a total uh, motor head, uh, petrol head, or, you know, you, <laughs> you're an environmentalist who thinks the car is the devil. Um, yeah. and so, uh, I didn't want it to, you know, I knew I wanted to appeal to both of those crowds to a certain mm-hmm. degree. So somehow kind of uh, basically try to, well, let me back up. I mean, I think what we wanted to do, and I intimated it earlier was the idea that, um, we can use the car to tell a really powerful story about how design has agency in the world for better and Mm. for worse, right? So here's Mm -hmm. the case example. Um, And let's just try and unpack that story um, and through doing that kind of maybe demystify some of the things that we've taken for granted. And I think the history of the car is is one that um, people actually don't really understand properly about how it became... Um, the most kind of popular object, the second most expensive thing you buy in your life. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, to the point where uh, it's completely restructured our cities and, and you can't live in many cities without having your own car. Um, and so that story, it was really important to demystify that and just show that actually, you know, at the beginning, the car, like any other new invention, was this thing that didn't have much use. Um, and so much of the work in popularizing the car was through the manufacture of desire to make people want this thing. And so that's the narrative side of it. So it was really trying to unpack that. And then to try and unpack, you know, there are aspects where we can kind of, where we very clearly understand the car has had an impact, you know, through the creation of suburbs mm-hmm. and highways and pollution. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of easier stories. But um, to show kind of more unexpected uh, impacts of uh, of the automobile, so you know its influence through streamlining and design, um, mm. you know its its role in uh, the acceleration of mass manufacture, um, but also on the consumption end, you know its you know very important role in um, in creating a culture of manufactured obsolescence uh, through the introduction of you know new colors and styles and wanting a new car every two or three years and things like that. Um, (laughs) So there are all these kind of really rich stories that we wanted to unpack um, and make it, you know, about the car, but make it about much more than the car. Um, So it's not just a fetish of kind of design details of the automobile itself.
0: What's next for you? What are you working on right now? Do you have shows coming up? Do you have other kind of ideas that are fermenting that you want to kind of explore more? Where Where's your head right now?
1: Yeah, so, um, so there's not much happening at the museum right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. We're,
1: we're very much closed. Um, and when we closed um, for the first time last March, uh, I started a project, which was an online project, which I also call an editorial project because it's only right, mm. uh, called Pandemic Objects. And that's been a series that um, has a, a pretty simple format. Um, it just came out of the observation that um, uh, objects through the lens of pandemic seem to be transforming in their meaning and in their use. Um, and mm. so... The, the project is just an online space where um, my colleagues and myself post on one object, um, you know, every few days, um, and talk about how uh, how the pandemic is changing our perception of what that object is and how that object can help tell us the story of the pandemic. And it's quite wild that it goes from radiators to sewing machines to you know toilet paper, um, and most importantly, it doesn't deal with. Uh, it hardly touches on design responses so it goes back to the mm. thing I was talking about earlier about like trying to understand the city and society and the world as a network of objects that we rely on every day and how these objects really mediate and organize our daily lives especially um, um, through the lens of the pandemic right now so that's been really rewarding um, I'm hoping to find some funding to turn it into a book at some point um mm. And and possibly an exhibition, but then that goes back to the debate. You know, should it be an exhibition? <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, that's that. great. So I'm working on that, and then um, and then just kind of looking forward and trying to propose new exhibitions for the for the museum. So it's on the one hand, it's been quite frustrating that we've been closed, but on the other hand, it's offered a lot of reflective time to think about um, what next.
0: Yeah yeah that's a perfect segue into my final question speaking of reflecting time i would yeah. love to know what you're reading i, I want to know what you're reading right now
1: so i've been doing a lot of cooking uh and mm. so i've got um a book about french provincial cooking by elizabeth david from the 60s uh oh, nice which i hope to get into although i find french cuisine really intimidating um yeah yeah same <laughs> There's a book I'm really dying to read. I'm about once I finish the, the current one I'm reading is um, uh, how to do nothing from Jenny O'Dell. I think you might
0: read her prop. Properly. Yes. She was, she was on the show. That's a great book.
1: Yeah. It's a great book and she does amazing work. And I feel like, yeah, our interests are really aligned and trying to kind of do really simplistic research and unravel, like where does stuff come from and how does, how does yeah. the online world kind of um, collide with the physical world? So I'm reading that. Yeah. And then there's another really good one. Um, Called Sinews of War and Trade by Lale Khalili. Uh, and this is looking at um shipping and capitalism capitalism through the lens of the Arabian Peninsula. It's oh, a bit of a wild card, but I, I've heard it's really good. Um yeah, and that's it right now. I mean that's, it's a little bit I have too much stuff to read.
0: As we all. I think that's a great list. I also like that you brought in a cookbook. No one's ever done that on the on the show before. So uh, I mean you are it's pandemic. Yeah 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 i'm surprised actually i'm really surprised it hasn't come up before um brendan thanks so much for being on the show i really enjoyed uh really enjoyed this conversation
1: oh it's wonderful thanks for thanks for having me
0: this episode was recorded on february 10th 2021 our theme music is by Andy new we're on twitter and instagram at surface podcast you can support the show on patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and it's scratching thanks for listening